Welcome, John Nolt, and thank you for being here with us. Uh, John Nolt is a professor emeritus of philosophy at the University of Tennessee. Welcome. Good to talk with you. So what I would love to start discussing here is that you have a long history as a, a professor and an educator. Would you mind to tell your story of how you became an educator? Well, I guess it goes uh, back to my family. My mother was a teacher, and uh, she she uh, taught me uh, love of learning, I guess, and, and uh, I always uh, read a lot and thought a lot and graduated from college uh, not knowing what I wanted to do and uh, worked construction for a couple of years, and that convinced me that I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So I was really interested in philosophy at the time and, and just wrapped up in philosophical ideas and had a good friend who was a computer scientist working on artificial intelligence. So he talked me into going back to uh, graduate school in philosophy, uh, which I did, um, and, uh, and, and loved it and really enjoyed it. And of course, the only thing you can do with a philosophy degree is teach. So that's how I got into teaching. I'd, I'd never really had planned to be a teacher, but um, uh, it, the, I tried it on and it fit real well. So I've had a lifetime uh, experience with it. It's been great. And your journey as an educator um, and specifically within philosophy, you started out doing almost more mathematically oriented philosophy and grew into uh, interests in um, kind of combined with the environment and specifically environmental ethics and even um, involvement in local communities and activism. Could you talk about how your interests grew and shifted and how that affected your teaching? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's right. At, at the beginning, I was interested in mathematical logic more than anything else, and, and that's what I studied. It's what I did my dissertation on. Uh, the real turning point for me was when my daughter was born. This was in 1985, and a strange thing happened. After her birth, I found myself being depressed, and I was this way for a number of months, and I couldn't figure it out because it didn't make sense. There was nothing in my external circumstance that uh, that suggested any problem. And um, after a, a, a while contemplating, what's the issue here? Why am I feeling like this? It began to I began to realize I wasn't really depressed. I was angry. And the reason I was angry was because I was thinking about the kind of world that my daughter was going to grow up into and thinking about how degraded it was going to be compared to the world that I had grown up in. And it made me furious. And I had not really thought about that directly. And so it was all kind of building up inside of me. When I came to that realization, I thought, I can't just continue on as I've been. I've got to do something. Because I had this idea, you know, what if, uh, you know, 30 years hence or something, she comes back to me and she says, Dad, why didn't you do something? And I have to have an answer for that. I have to be able to tell her, yes, uh, I, I did. Here's what I did. And so uh, I got involved in environmental activism then in the mid-'80s, uh, a variety of different things. I worked on toxic waste issues, on wetlands preservation, uh, on uh, air quality, a bunch of different things. I began doing some writing. Um, and ultimately, that led to a change in my career. So I began teaching environmental ethics about around 1990. 
uh, with the idea of I wanted my teaching to be something that would engage my passion. And, and I found that that really uh, this was what I was most passionate about. And, and uh, I could put that passion and, and also the anger that, that, that I was feeling. I could put that into the activism and into the teaching in a constructive way. So that's uh, that's how I came to teach environmental ethics. Uh, around 1990, I did the first environmental ethics course uh, that I taught, and uh, it was uh, an experiential learning course in addition to, to dealing with theory and literature of environmental ethics. So I had students go out and meet people who were do doing environmental work in the community and, and learn about some aspects of it. And, and I, I wanted more than anything else for them to get inspired to to do things and to live in a better way uh, as a result of their experience in that course. And then after about 10 years, I started teaching it at the graduate level and getting involved more theoretically uh, in environmental ethics and, and wrote several books and a number of articles on it. So uh, at, at, currently, I teach it at, at both levels. And, uh, and so, so that, you, that's how you began teaching in this, you know, mathematical logic context. And after uh, a, at least a few years teaching this and focusing on this, uh, you know, in your uh, function as a an educator of college students, you kind of transition a bit into teaching what I imagine was a very different subject and mm -hmm. required different tools and methods or approaches and maybe even uh, very different students came to those courses in environmental that, ethics. That's really and, true. Yeah, they, they were yeah. they were certainly not the same kind of courses, the same kind of the same kind of nerdy students that you would expect to find in a logic course. Uh, <laughs> they were they were a, quite a diverse group. And, and so it was a. Uh, it was a real challenge. Um, I made a lot of dumb mistakes and, you know, learning. Uh, but I think I think it improves some over the years. And, and uh, I always enjoyed it. I always loved doing that. But but I didn't give up the other. Uh, I, I still uh, I still love doing the logic and I continue to do that as well. Do you remember that first environmental ethics oriented course that you taught? And in particular, did you have how did you come up with the course materials and the methods and kind of figure out how to teach this relatively different subject and you know think about how you would structure a course around this very different material you know i don't remember exactly the first course they all kind of blur together in my mind but i remember the the general way things were in the earliest courses um, there were at the time just two or three textbooks in environmental ethics. And uh, I, I adopted one of the textbooks because I didn't have anything better to do in terms of, of uh, literature. So we, we, we uh, and I used different ones. Every time I taught it, I used different ones because new ones were coming out because I didn't like any of them. And uh, I, uh, uh, so we, we, we read, you know, the, the available literature so that was part of it. Um, I, I would start out uh, talking about uh, environmental issues generally. So usually I would start with some environmental science just to get people up to speed on what the issues were. And then we talked more theoretically about environmental ethics. And at the same time, I had students organizing 
projects, uh, particularly in these early courses, I also had lots of speakers come in because I was deeply involved in the local activist scene and there were lots of really smart, really good people who were doing activism in Knoxville at the time. And I wanted the students to be exposed to those people and I wanted them to hear what those people had to say. Uh, and they were very, very different too. Some of them were folks from Oak Ridge National Lab who were dealing with things at a very high level. I had hardcore activists from things like Greenpeace and, and the river keepers who were out there on the river day after day trying to look after the well-being of the river um, and uh, anti-nuke activists and a whole a whole variety of people who came in into the to the class and, and they got to hear from. Well, this is this is particularly fascinating occurring in the context of, I guess, 1980s Knoxville, Tennessee. And, mm -hmm. you know, of course, well, 1990s, yeah, 1990s. Yeah. And universities are often kind of liberal or progressive centers in the context even of of quite conservative places. I'm curious, mm -hmm. did you have to think about or deal with how for you know, if you got a random sample of the population of the surrounding area, those issues might have felt very controversial, and particularly in philosophy, which has, as a discipline, right, it's kind of known for tackling issues and considering mm -hmm. questions that are just fundamentally, people feel very differently about them. People come right. to very different opinions about them and feel incredibly strongly. I mean, the kinds of questions that wars have been fought over, right? What is the purpose of life? What's the best way to live life? How, how did you confront that? Did you think about that? And generally, do you have a strategy for teaching issues or teaching subjects, leading courses on issues that are really often quite, quite controversial? Um, it, that's very, that's changed a lot over the years too. So those, those initial courses were small, um, because, uh, nobody had ever heard of environmental ethics before. It was not a requirement for anything. And it was, uh, it, they, they were small and kind of intimate and the audience was self-selected and they were, they were all environmentalists pretty much in those early courses. And then as the course grew and became requirements for some things, then I started getting a, a more diverse group, some of whom were uh, were pretty opposed to some of the things I was saying. And uh, uh, of course, that's that's something we're used to in philosophy. So um, we the 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 standard uh, way of handling that goes back to Socrates, and that is to be an interlocutor to get people to give arguments for the positions that they hold. And then to, to look at those arguments and examine them and ask the class to examine the assumptions and try to discuss them in a civil way. Um, uh, and, and so that's, that's what I did. Uh, it, usually it worked. Uh, there were some times early in two thousands, uh, where, Climate change had become a hot button issue, and I just taught the science straight out at the beginning of the course. And I'd have people, when I taught climate science, get up and walk out of class, which was astonishing to me. They didn't want to hear the science, um, but that it did happen that way. 
and it wasn't very many. It was a, a few people sometimes got, it got up and walked out of class. And uh, uh, that stopped um, long about 2010 or so, probably before that, uh, when the students just finally everybody got it. It was, it was no longer controversial that climate change was real, at least among University of Tennessee students. But there were there were times like that, and of course, when somebody gets up and walks out, the, the dialogue is at an end. You don't you don't have an opportunity to to ask them questions or or uh, draw them out as, as to why they believe what they believe. But uh, but the Socratic method is uh, is uh, what I've always used, and 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 I still think works pretty well. Uh, we we look at arguments, and uh, you know, here's 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 your view. Okay, what's the evidence, and and then what's what evidence can people find against it, and and try to be rational about it. I, I will say one of the things that that has been most uh, helpful to me is uh, a real good friendship I have with uh, a. Uh, uh, conservative minister here on campus who who uh, works with the conservative Christian students and he he runs uh, something called the Veritas Forum where they bring in uh, opposing speakers on various topics including environmental topics uh, and um, one of the one of the speakers is always a conservative Christian and the other one is always somebody who disagrees and the the whole purpose of these things is to model civil discourse to show people that peop that with varying um, uh, opinions, very widely different opinions, you can still have a decent conversation. And I think that's been so valuable for the campus as a whole. And I've really, I've been involved a lot in that and, and supported it uh, for many years. And that seems like just in general, something that in some ways feels harder and harder to do as, as uh, kind of time goes on in, in the recent, you know, 10 years maybe. Uh, do you find, do you notice any shifts in, in you know, kind of the culture around your courses? It seems like you mentioned that um, students by and large nowadays are more open or uh, generally mm. accepting of the foundations of climate science. In the last yeah. five to 10 years, I mean, there's been, uh, one might describe it as like an increase in polarization in the climate. Have you noticed that on campus and has that spilled into any of your, your classes? I have, I have not noticed it on, in my classes, let's say. It, it, it's still there on campus. You would you know, in the business college, I'm sure, uh, places like that, you would find uh, climate skeptics, but they don't show up in my classes anymore, uh, whereas they used to. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what the explanation of that is, but I, but I think in part it is a much broader acceptance of climate science among students. Well, and this brings open for me a, a question of what does success mean for a student in kind of your various courses? Um, is it the mm -hmm. same in the different kinds of courses that you're teaching? So for example, in a mathematical logic course, the, uh, uh, in philosophical logic, like how we might construct a rigorous proof, you know, using various propositional logic uh, tools mm -hmm. might be a learning outcome. It's kind of a skill plus knowledge right. uh, thing. Whereas in the environmental ethics 
Is it similar, some combination of skills and knowledge? How do you think about learning outcomes and objectives for your students? There, well, there, there are some common objectives, I think, to all learning. One is to just learn the basic facts and ideas, and that's the same in logic and environmental ethics. There, there, are, uh, there, there are a variety of ideas from environmental science you've got to know to, to do environmental ethics well, and also you've got to know environmental ethics theory a bit. So, so um, those kinds of things, they're, they're objective. Um, you can test for them in, in similar ways, essays or whatever. Uh, but, but after that, there's a great divergence. So in, in logic, what I'm chiefly after is trying to get people not only to, to grasp ideas, but also to learn the skills. And, this, and in logic, uh, it, the only way to learn the skills is by practice. So I give them lots and lots of practice problems lots of homework and um and much of the class is devoted to problem solving and and talking our way through problems so that students see the various strategies and the various ways of thinking and and how errors occur and why the errors occur and how to avoid the errors and that sort of thing um so it's a it's a very practice oriented kind of course um in environmental ethics, I'm trying to do something more radically practical and, and also philosophical. First of all, I want students to care about um, the welfare of life, the welfare of the environment. Uh, so I'm trying to inspire them to do that. And you can't inspire students to do anything by talking to them. You have to show them stuff. <coughs> and I think the best way to to learn to live an ethical life is to see lots of examples of people living ethical lives. So we, that's why I love to do this service learning uh, kind of teaching where students get out in the community and they see people who are doing good work and accomplishing things that are worthwhile. Uh, I think that's the most important aspect of that course. And then they get out and they, they go out and do some work too. So they may be going to a, a an urban agriculture project and making compost, or they may be cleaning up a creek, or they may be helping out at a humane society shelter, or uh, there's there are, uh, there are lots and lots of things that, that, that they can do. They get to organize whatever project they want, picking up cigarette butts, I, I, all gazillions of things that they, that, that, that they can do, but they all lead toward the same sort of goal of getting a sense that you can, as an individual, do something that's going to help make the world just a little bit better. And that's that's the chief thing about that course. Of course, there's the knowledge stuff, too. There's learning a theory and the, and the facts of environmental science and, and so on. But um, but to, to my mind, the experiential learning is the central focus of that course. And that's that's fascinating because it is a different kind of educational model or a different, you know, uh, aspect of a course that many, uh, even most university classes don't involve. This out yeah. in the community uh, experiential or service learning model. I'm curious how you tend to think about evaluating students in this context and this invites a broader question about the how meaningful grades are 
but yeah. specifically in the context of you know a service learning project, how do you think about the quality of student work and then kind of using that to assess whether they have learned or progressed during a particular semester? Yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's, of course, much more difficult to get an objective assessment of, of student learning in, in a course like that than in, it is in a logic course. But, uh, but here are some of the things I do. So first of all, the, the service learning courses are all uh, done in small groups. Uh, and, and I have uh, group self-evaluation. So I have each member of the group evaluate all the other members of the group and tell me, you know, was this person an equal participant? Were they a leader? Were they uh, never around? Um, and so, so a large part of the evaluation is, did the person even show up? You know, did they, did, were, they, were they there and were they working and were they involved and cooperating with other people? Um, and uh, so I mean, that's, that's step one. If you're, not, if you're not doing that, you're not, you're not gonna get anything out of it. But then uh, I also have them working with folks in the community, and then I have those people. I, I talk to those people and say, okay, who, who, so what did you think of the group? Who was, who was really prominent there? Who, who was really the shining star or the shining stars, and, and which ones were you know, not, not so involved? In? And uh, so I, I, get, I get feedback there. Um, I also have them write up a, a group-authored report in which they describe the problem that they're working on, the things that they did that were relevant to the problem, and then um, a set of solutions. And I grade the, that report as a whole for the group. So that there's a group grade, but then there are individual grades on the amount of participation that the students uh, the students had. So it's it's a it's a kind of complex. Uh, system but uh, but i think you know it it's it's as objective as, as i can figure out how to do it and what we what we hear which i i think is is really interesting is one this is something that it would be very hard for a computer to ever do like checking the result of uh, a math yeah. problem right but nevertheless it doesn't mean that it is kind of devoid of objectivity it's just complex and does incorporate some element of human judgment and human interaction of saying it's it's clear that you know uh, based on the feedback reports from their peers and uh, the report from the community contact that they never saw you know student why that this student Y didn't do a lot of work for this project. And, yeah. you know, student X from the peer feedback reports and being at the community members location every, every weekend that they were working hard. And so even though we have this, like it's hard to specify the exact rules um, or uh, reason why, you know, any particular thing happened, there are fairly good criteria that with just a little bit of judgment can be used to get a really good, you know, handle on what would justify a particular evaluation at the end of a course for a student that generally speaking, I assume most of them would not disagree with, right? If they're honest. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, it's it's not that I sit you know, sit back in my armchair and just throw darts at a at a dartboard or something to determine the grades. Now it, it's it's a lot of work to to run one of these things, and I've got to compile the all the uh, the group self evaluations and you know assemble all the the other information. Of course, there are tests on the factual knowledge. This this is not the only thing that gets graded in the course. There are, there are quizzes on the reading and tests on the factual knowledge as well and uh, and so it, it all gets thrown into a pot and, and turned into a grade somehow. And at this and, point, and, you know, yeah, go ahead. Another thing I'll say about this experience learning is that uh, a number of students who have, have been through this have had that in one way or another influenced their careers and, and went on to do interesting stuff. And they'll come back and tell me, you know, here's here's what I was here's what I, I'm doing now. And it has to do with something that they did in their service project. Would you say based on that, that, you know, on reflection, the impact on students' lives through the service learning environmental ethics courses have potentially been greater uh, or, you know, per student more impactful than other areas of your teaching? And would you say that's because of potentially the service learning aspect? Um, it, you know, it's really hard to say because uh, I can't, you, you can't, I don't have any good statistics. I, this is all anecdotal. Some students come back and they tell me, hey, remember what I did this and now I'm doing this and it's connected, that kind of stuff. But then there are people like you who who really benefited from the logic course and and have learned a lot and and now are doing computer work in a way that uh, you know may, maybe had some connection to that. Um, it, it's it's really hard to tell. I I it, I don't have anything that's statistically significant enough to tell. All I know is that that sometimes these these uh, these service learning courses do do have some effect on students directions and and at that point I'd really love to um, orient the conversation you know based on what we've discussed to the potential for distance learning to provide effective and equitable education to students particularly in light of these two very interesting you know domains of uh, of teaching that you do one being this mathematically oriented logic and the other being environmental ethics education with this strong human in-person even element. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you look forward, especially to the next year, um, how, how do you think about what your courses are going to look like for your students in these two different areas. Do you think one or the other has a much greater potential to provide valuable outcomes for students at a distance? Uh, I, I think that the, the logic uh, style of course is much more suitable to the, to distance education than the kind of course that I do for environmental ethics. So much of it is based upon local contacts and local people in environmental ethics and getting outside and doing stuff. Uh, that's really hard for me to un 
to understand how one might do that as distance learning. Logic, uh, it's, it's quite possible to do, although I think there are still a number of drawbacks to distance learning. And this might be a transition into some of the other things that you wanted to ask, because the only time I've ever done it was this past semester when we were uh, told at spring break that now classes were going to be all online after ha having started uh, with a syllabus uh, designed for a course that was taught in person. Uh, and uh, and that was a rough transition. Uh, and I, I uh, so I, I uh, hadn't I hadn't had much thought about teaching online before that. And um, and the transition, I think, considerably lowered the quality of the course, but part of that was because I wasn't prepared and I, I didn't have the knowledge that I would have needed to smoothly move the course online. I would love to hear just the story of that transition to online and distance education for this past semester. How, you know, you mentioned that it made the quality of the the course lower, largely probably because of just an insufficient uh, amount of preparation as affected every educator, I think probably in the world um, and certainly yeah. in the United States is that giant transition happened in um, probably late February, early March. How did that, how did you experience that transition and, and why do you feel like it uh, lowered the quality of education for students? Well, all sorts of ways. Um, for one thing, uh, I was teaching logic and, the, and the, the, my standard way of doing a logic course is to, a, a class in logic is to introduce some ideas at the beginning of the class, answer questions that people have, um, that's all doable online. And then uh, to work problems on the board. So I'll set up a problem and I'll say to the class, all right, now how would you approach this problem? Somebody come up with an idea and we'll try it out. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. And we just talk through the, the problem and, 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 and do it on a, uh, what used to be a blackboard. Uh, now it's a whiteboard. Um, and uh, so uh, when we moved online, uh, I thought, oh God, how am I gonna do that? And, and there's a whiteboard, of course, that you can use on Zoom, but it doesn't have logic symbols that are easily accessible. And when you try to draw on it, you're, you get this shaky stuff that's illegible. And so I was kind of at a loss and I was trying to do things with uh, slideshows where I would present, and it, so everything was kind of mechanical in that way and pre-programmed. And then my uh, brilliant uh, stepdaughter said, Dad, you're teaching from your office. You have a blackboard behind you. And <laughs> it's an old-fashioned chalkboard, which is what you love most. So <laughs> why don't you just put that in the green, in, in, the, in the Zoom screen and use it? <laughs> and I realized that she was absolutely right. And so that solved that problem. It was great. What, the, the day that I, that I first did that, I thought, wow, I'm back teaching again. This is really good. That's um, amazing. Uh, so, um, but there were other problems. Um, so with Zoom, some people didn't have the bandwidth to have their audio and, and video on at the same time. 
the university discouraged people from using audio a lot if you're using the university system because they were afraid that their servers were going to crash. So at any given time, I could see three or four students in my class. That was about it. And for me, probably the most important source of feedback that I have from students is facial expressions when I'm teaching. So not having that feedback made it very difficult to know whether I was reaching the students at any given moment. Uh, so, you know, any kind of educational software that's going to serve well for distance learning has, I think, has to have a reliable way of having the students' faces on the screen so you can see what whether you're getting through or not. Um, the uh, the chalkboard worked okay, um, and and that. Uh, but there, it'd be nice if there was some kind of computer screen um, equivalent of that, because you don't. Not everybody's got a chalkboard in their home office, and uh, that that would be uh, that would be helpful. The other thing that I was stumped by, uh, I usually give tests in the logic class. Uh, which I, uh, I hand out at the beginning of class and take up at the end of class, and, and you have a certain number of problems that you have to work in, and uh, and then they get graded. But you can't do that by Zoom. Uh, students are working uh, in all kinds of conditions. Um, you don't know if they're communicating with one another. You don't know if they've got a cheat sheet. Um, so I just scuttled the tests and did everything in terms of homework. Um, but um, but that wasn't really satisfactory either. Uh, so so the issue of testing um, and, and maybe there's a good way to do this on Zoom, but I didn't know it and I didn't know anybody who could tell me to do it. So um, that the the idea that you could just give students a test that they would and then they wouldn't have an opportunity to, to look up information elsewhere or online and and uh, to communicate with the students. Um, uh, that's hard with uh, with uh, distance learning. Absolutely, absolutely, and and we see two things here, right? That are critical issues in terms of creating effective distance learning experiences. One is interactivity with students and having feedback from students as the lesson progresses and even when we have full video and a strong internet connection it's often a, it's just harder to tell it's harder to tell body language it's harder to tell you know if they're yeah. looking at something else on their computer screen that are just much easier in an in-classroom setting so that absolutely rings true from my experiences as, as a student with with distance learning uh, and as a teacher. And then um, for the second part of evaluation, I think that's a more critical and fundamental question of when someone is very far away, do we want to replicate the traditional testing environment? Uh, and the question there, because it's challenging, it's technologically challenging to do. It's, it's difficult to make sure they're not looking at something else. They don't have a spare sheet of paper. 
we don't control the environments of students in, during this experience, in addition to all the challenges of people being available synchronously at a certain time in a crazy period in the world. Yeah. My question would be, what do we hope to get from tests that is difficult to get from these homeworks? What's the difference in the function between the two? Um, and uh, and why, why does the, you know, everyone in a room for an hour writing things down, what's the unique value of that for, for a particular logic course? Well, um, because it verifies that they, that it's actually the, that student who is capable of doing the problems uh, on homework. I, I know students work together and, and I, I tell them, you know, it's fine. You can talk with other students when you're doing homework. I, I think of homework as practice. I don't count it as much as the, the tests. And, and um, uh, you, you learn from one another when you, when you talk about it. So that's good. I, I think that's fine. But there are students who just will copy another student's work and change it a little. And sometimes I'll catch that. And sometimes I won't. But they can't do that on a test, and um, and and then so uh, it gives them the incentive that they have to really do this on their own. They have to be able to do it on their own in order to pass the course. Whereas if you know you can go to your smart friend and and then he'll give you the answers to the or she'll give you the answers to the to the homework. You just put them. You know, it's it's an it's an incentive to learn. It's an important incentive to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you can't just give everyone the same set of problems for a take-home test because then they could copy one another. In right. some world, we could imagine giving everyone an independent set, a different set of problems that they have to complete individually. And even if they try to complete them together, it's not going to help because they're all different. But then you have right. a question of, are they all equally difficult? And also managing 30 different tests rather than yeah. just one <laughs> test. So yeah. it explodes and in this difficulty. Is, this is a, yeah, this is a, a, a labor-intensive kind of test to grade because um, they're complex problems and almost everybody makes mistakes. And so you got to give partial credit. Everything's got to be looked at very carefully. And if you're dealing with a bunch of different answers to different tests, then you've got to think through every one of them. Uh, it, the labor there becomes pretty, uh, pretty daunting. Massive, massive. I'm sure. I mean, I, I can't. Yeah. It's. I'm sure it's an enormous amount of work to even grade 30 tests that are all the same and make it fair. Much less uh, creating 30 different fair tests and then grading them all equally yeah. fairly. It becomes quite yeah. challenging. Um, well. Uh, it's so interesting to hear about that. Do you have, based on that, um, thoughts about what you'll do in the coming uh, year? Will you try to go back to in-person teaching as quickly as possible? Or do you think you'll stick with a distance learning model for a little bit longer? I'm going to go back to the in-class teaching uh, if it's feasible and it looks like that's going to be possible in the fall at least at first if we get another spike in the virus we'll have to go back to online um, and I'll, and now this this fall is going to be a different course 
even than any we've talked about. I'm doing a history of 19th and 20th century philosophy. That may be a little bit easier to do uh, online, but it's still uh, there's still issues with testing there, uh, and I'm not sure how I do that. But I'm but I'm planning to do it um, in person to the extent that I can, and if I have to switch to online, I'll just deal with it when I deal with it. Um, well, one final question here. What's a, a method of teaching that you really love, or what are some some moments in teaching that really get you excited or, or make you feel good about being an educator? Uh, I... I think it's about introducing students to ideas that help them to figure out how to live a meaningful life, that give them an insight that then they, they can take out into the world and, and use it. To have, to have a perspective on the world that they didn't have before, to uh, open, up their, open up their minds to a wider horizon. Uh, and that that can come in any of the the kinds of classes I teach, whether it's history of philosophy or uh, environmental ethics or or even logic, because uh, you know in, in logic there are there are some tremendous ideas that are they're deep and profound and really interesting, and it's just a sheer delight when some of the students get it and they. Uh, they really appreciate the profundity of these ideas and they want to go further. I love that. That's uh, that's amazing. And uh, I can say as a former student, it was when uh, I took your advanced formal logic class. And at the end I was like, I want to uh, continue on with this. I'm so excited about this. Where, where do we go from here? And uh, you said, well, a lot of, uh, you know, advanced logic shifted over to uh, computer science in the 80s and 90s. So that might be somewhere that you might want to check out. And that was when I first yeah. kind of thought and decided, oh, I guess I better check out computer science. And then a few, few years later, here I am, a, a software engineer. So I would say uh, the impact that you describe, I, I certainly was a beneficiary of. Well, and you were one of those delightful students to have who really got it. I, that, that's, uh, that's, that's always so much fun to have students like you. Well, uh, thank you so much. Um, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat today. My pleasure. All right.